Hi everyone, my name is Amanda Bulow and I'm the founder of Awesome Women in Construction, or AWIC, a not-for-profit association who provides a supporting community for women in the construction industry. I've started a podcast series called Awesome Women, taking a wide focus on women in all areas of the community, construction, automotive, mining, healthcare, farming, hospitality and many others. I have met some amazing and wonderful women in my time, and they all have a story to tell, one that we are ready to hear. The podcast guests have had and are having amazing careers. They are small business owners, many of them raising a family at the same time. Others I know are training for a variety of reasons, including representing our country in sport and climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Some of you have represented your country in sport and are now writing books and carving out very successful careers. Some of our guests are employed full time and have a side hustle. Your journeys vary, but they are all inspirational and can show others what the world has to offer. You are an inspiration to me and I wanna share that with the AWIC members in our fabulous community. My intention was to have a casual chat, enabling women to tell their stories. This has definitely been achieved. I have enjoyed recording these podcasts. Now it's time for you to enjoy listening to them. Hi, everybody. Well, we're here with the lovely Fiona Cullen for another Awesome Women podcast. Hi, Fiona. Hello. So, quick introduction to Fiona. So, Fiona has represented Australia five times in two sports, and I will let Fiona um, discuss those because one of them is quite interesting. Um, and the lessons that she's applied along the way um, has led her into the business world today. So, Fiona, let's start on that amazing athletic career. Thanks. <laughs> um, okay, so... I've always been a runner um, and when I was uh, really young as well, um, I did gymnastics. So I was actually diagnosed with a scoliosis in my spine. So I, I had a little kink in my spine and um, the doctor suggested that gymnastics would be good for that. Um, so I was like a, a level eight gymnast at the age of 12. <laughs> so I've kind of, I've always been that kind of person that if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it to the nth degree. Um, and so um, I, I always, you know, I guess my, my brother was going to scout, my brothers and, you know, going scouts and cubs, my sister was a girl guide. I was training, I was training at the gymnasium 25 hours a week. Um, but, um, but I loved it. Um, and, um, you know, when I transitioned to high school, um, I was able to keep doing my gymnastics, but I was introduced to, to hurdling. So I was a good little sprinter at primary school, but high school was really where I fell in love with hurdling. Um, and then I went overseas um, on a rotary exchange uh, to Belgium uh, for a year. And during that time, I continued my athletics. And that's where I met um, like the, my athletics club over there, um, kind of became a really important um, sort of staging point. Um, and then when I came home, I started uni and still kept the athletics going. Um, and it wasn't until I went to the University Games um, in 1999 over in Perth um, that uh, I got a couple of pointers from a hurdles coach um, and I like, you know, improved my personal best for like half a second, which when, when the whole thing lasts 14 seconds, it was a fairly significant jump. 
That's crazy. Um, yeah. So it was really at that point. Um, and obviously it was leading into the 2000 Olympics in Australia. And I was like, hang on, maybe I've, maybe I've got what it takes to actually be good at this. <laughs> so, um, you know, from very amateur beginnings, um, I then uh, I found a, a, a coach who, um, you know, was specifically a, a hurdles coach, among other things, and a multi-event coach actually is a very, very accomplished, very successful multi-events coach. He's had uh, three Olympians and uh, his name's Eric Brown. So he's um, a lovely, lovely man, a big part of my life. Um, and so, yeah, so he and I started working together. Um, and basically from like October 99 through to um, the um, Olympic trials um, in 2000, um, I went from like nobody to, I was I think I was ranked like 28th or 40th or something like that and I, I jumped to like fourth in the country so um it was a very quick very quick uh, rise um and I actually used to come to some injuries because the, the shift was so fast but um yeah so I then I, I went to my first Olympic trials um and I ended up coming seventh um and it was a really awesome experience we got to compete on the, the Olympics in the stadium and everything as a trial event um and then I I attended um the the 2000 Olympics as a um I can't believe it was 20 years ago. Seems like yesterday. Um, I attended with my parents and um, I watched the women's hurdles race and I was like, okay, that's kind of where I made my inner vow that I wanted to, to be an Olympian. Um, and I was, I was in the stadium when Kathy Freeman won her medal, um, you know, like, so just really significant emotional, uh, you know, impact of that whole experience. Um, and so two years later, I qualified for my first Commonwealth Games in Manchester, 2002. Um, and uh, I, it was, I, again, a great experience. Um, lots of learning um, that went along with that. Um, I actually, um, like, really badly sprained my ankle just before I left. Um, so I kind of carried that injury through. Um, but again, you know, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Um, and then um, I went to uh, China. Um, so that was a really interesting experience. I was on a development squad and to actually go to China and um, experience it. So then obviously fast forward to now and see what's happening over there. And um, it kind of gives you a really great appreciation for um, just how densely populated and, you know, the pollution and all that sort of stuff. Like, you know, where we were competing, I couldn't see the finish line from the start line because of the pollution. Like it was pretty full on. Um, yeah, um, and, and I know a lot has changed in, you know, the last 15 years. So, you know, um, just the, the, the vast difference. Um, and then, uh, so where do we get up to? That's right, China. 2006, 2006 was the Melbourne Commonwealth Games, um, which was incredible. I was also fighting injuries just prior to that. So, uh, you know, like three weeks before, it was, un it was uncertain as to whether I'd get there. So I got there and made the final. I came fifth. My, my whole family and my coach were there. It was the only international competition that my whole family and coach had been able to see. So it was such an incredible experience. Um, there's nothing like a home game. It kind of, for me, sort of um, connected in with, um, with my experience at uh, watching it, spectating in 2000. Um, I, I actually also, I qualified for the Athens Olympics, um, but it was only a B-level qualification um, and the selectors um, 
didn't think that I would be good enough to make a final, so they chose not to send me, okay. um, which is their discretion. How, how does that go with... The... Oh, it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you worked your ass off and then someone goes, yeah, we don't think you're quite good yeah, enough. Yeah, perhaps not. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my, my consolation prize was um, the, the following year in 2005, I was part of the Oceania team that went to the World Cup. So oh. I, I did get to anchor the 4x1 relay in Athens at that track. So I did get to run on the track. It just was a year later. <laughs> that's, that sounds awesome in itself, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then I, uh, I got on a, a massive ferry and went across to Mykonos and partied for a week afterwards. It was awesome. Um, <laughs> Work hard, <laughs> play hard, right? That's exactly it, 100%. <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, so 2000 and then 2007, um, was part of the women's four by one that went to Osaka for the world championships. Um, that was incredibly special, that whole experience. Um, you know, by that stage, Sally Pearson was really coming mm -hmm. through the ranks and, um, uh, she, she was part of the, the relay squad. Um, and she actually, you know, broke the, the 100 meters, um, Australian record and then also, um, placed very well in the, um, the hurdles as well. So, um, yeah, I, that was kind of getting towards the end of my career. Um, we qualified, uh, the relay for the Beijing Olympics at, at the world champs. Um, and then we had a pretty crappy summer in terms of, you know, conditions and all that sort of thing. And at that point, Sally was under an injured cloud. Um, so it came to the qualification, like the selection trials for the relay, which in Australia we hold ours in sort of March, mm -hmm. April, um, which is quite early um, compared to the rest of the world. Um, they'll usually do their trials sort of in June, July, and then the Olympics are in August. Mm -hmm. So um, at that point in March, the selectors again decided that um, because Sally was on an injury cloud and the rest of us weren't running as fast as they thought we could or should, um, they weren't going to support us to run a qualifying or attempt another qualifying time um, in May, which they had done every previous year. So um, they relinquished Australia's spot. So um, essentially it meant that, um, yeah, so our, our, our Olympic bid was over for that year. Um, so that was incredibly devastating again. Um, incidentally, these people make that decision. You can't, there's no way around it. There's no, damn you, I'm going to do it anyway. Could, Come on, girls, let's you make could, it happen. Well, yeah, that's right. You could appeal. Like, I went to them and I just said, look, I'll pay for it. I don't care. I'll, I'll take us. Um, but without their endorsement. Um, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Yeah. So it was very difficult. Um, and... Yeah, I guess uh, what was fascinating as well is that we were ranked 16th. Um, so the top 16 countries, um, you know, get to put in relay teams. And so um, Nigeria were ranked 17th. So they actually got the spot. So they were given the 16th spot. Um, and they actually ended up winning a silver medal. Um, the Belgians won the gold um, because, you know, uh, America, Bahamas, Jamaica, they all dropped the bat in Russia. Dropped, there was all this like mayhem in the in the heats, uh, which meant the final was, um, you know, a completely different group of people. I mean, the Belgians were in incredible shape. They would have been in the final regardless. But yeah, um, yeah all these minnows, these tiny little nations um, ended up taking it out. And, you know, it, it's still a sore point for me because it was really un-Australian. Like, you know, we're the, we're the country of have a go. And, the selectors said, "No, we're not going to. We're not going to back you to have a go." Um, and so, you know, 
the only guarantee way of you know forcing an outcome is by not allowing someone to get on the start line so they essentially guaranteed us losing that opportunity by not not backing us to be there so thankfully for the other the other countries they got the glory and and you know sally pearson actually happened to recover perfectly and she won a silver medal herself in the hurdles and actually it ended up anchoring the four by four so yeah. how's that for history and you know people dictating an outcome before it's even been run so that was that was it for me i was like i i can't keep doing this <laughs> by well, that stage i was the continual you know not being supported by your yeah. country i guess that was that yeah that was the heart and you know a, a lot of people would say you know performance is the best currency you know if you weren't performing then then they're justified and of course like 100 percent, that's a very valid argument um i'd i'd counter that with you know every every year for the three years prior that we'd been putting relay teams together we'd gone right through to may and then they made a judgment call there and every year we we got better and we wrote we you know we rose to the challenge so you know, it was, it was just tough. It was, it, so, you know, at that point I was, I was 28 and I was like 29, 29, something like that. And I was like, yeah, I can't keep going another four years. Um, so I, I, it was about time that I put my marketing degree to, to good use. And um, yeah, I started, started working and um, actually earning money. Um, you know, that was, I was going to say, you, was, you, you know, not rolling in it after representing Australia. It's an odd thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, rolling in debt. Yeah. Um, yeah, like it was just this brilliant, like, annual cycle of um, pay off the credit card. You know, work, work several jobs, pay off the credit card, load it up, go to Europe, you know, maybe even some prize money so I could, you know, afford to eat and then come home, pay the credit card off and just rinse, repeat for 12. And I guess that's a lot of people may not realise that, you know, just because no. you're representing Australia doesn't mean you're getting any financial support whatsoever. Yeah. So um, you, if you, if you make a, a rep team, uh, you're essentially given your uh, uniform um, and uh, your accommodation and your flights. Um, if you change any of your flight schedule, though, you pay for it. Um, if you want to stay on and compete, you know, before or after, you pay for all of that. Um, you know, I pay for my coach. Um, I pay for all of my um, medical stuff. If you're not with the team, so the teams are often, I'll travel with physios and whatnot. But then you've got to fight the, you know, male sprinters to get on the table because they're usually, you know, hogging it. Yeah. Bloody Sherbo was bad for that. <laughs> always on the table get off the table Matt not enough um so yeah it was um you definitely don't uh do amateur sport for the money that's for sure um but I, I I truly believe that you know it it bestows riches upon you that uh you know so much better than money I mean there's there's a small percentage that will you know get the fame and fortune and all that sort of stuff um but then the vast majority, it's, that's not why you do it. You, you do it because you want to know what you're made of and you want to test yourself on the, the highest and most, you know, coveted, you know, platform. For, yeah, yeah. And you, and you strive to find, you know, that within yourself that you, you think is there, you know is there, and, you know, you, you hope one day it all falls, falls together and, you know, you can, you can execute, you know, a, a performance that is, 
worthy of your best. And if your best happens to be competitive on an international stage, then, you know, bonus. But it's, it's, what, you, it's what you actually learn about yourself. I was going to say, is that, is that the trade-off, you know, like my question 100%. was going to be, should there be more of a financial, you know, support system, but maybe that return is bigger and better than that. Yeah. I've, like, and look, I, I think, you know, there are the challenge that we have in Australia is we have such a tiny population compared to the incredible talent that we produce in sport across such a really broad breadth. You know, there's like over 44 Olympic sports. Um, and then we have five, five football codes on top of that, plus the cricket, plus the netball, plus, you know. There's just not enough time to go around. No, there's not. A, we, our, our corporate, um, you know, spend, our corporate sponsorship spend will never extend to, to you know, the amateur sports just purely because of, you know, there's not, there's not enough of us spending money, you know. We've, we haven't got an American economy of 380 million people, you know, uh, that we can skim off the top. You know, we've also not got, um, you know, the, the college system that they have where they've got boosters and donors and people who, you know, make astronomical amounts of money and then can afford to, you know, buy a new stadium for the university, right? Yeah. Just We just aren't working on... It's just we just don't have enough zeros. You know, if you added one or two more zeros to the end of our population, you'd have a, a slightly different... Um, uh, you know, ball game. But even then, you'd still have to fight for it, you know, and the, you have to cut through the competition and all the rest of it. So, um, yeah, I, I think I, I realised um, probably more so post-sport, um, and I haven't got to my second sport yet. Um, no. <laughs> um, but it really wasn't until post-sport that um, I realised what it had actually given me and the reasons for which I had engaged in it. Because uh, there were so many times that I felt like quitting and I wanted to give up. And, you know, my my sister, God bless her, her, her Olympic sport is sleeping. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she, she's like, why? Why do you keep doing this to yourself? You know, And I'm like, because there's a fire inside of me and I, I can't not do it. You know, I, I have to know. The biggest thing for me is I just, I had to know what I was made of. I had to know what I was capable of. I had to know in some respects how I measured up. Um, and at the end of it all, and seeing what happens. Yeah, exactly. And at the end of it all, I finally realized the measure wasn't in how fast I ran. The measure was in who I was as a person, yeah. the person I became, you know, the lessons that I learned, the situations and the circumstances that I put myself in that were really difficult. You know, it's actually not very easy to stand at the start line of a race with 85,000 people, you know, screaming. <laughs> um, it's incredible. Don't get me wrong. It's yeah, if you take that moment to let it soak in, but then you've got oh, to switch off, I would assume, to focus yeah, on that then, line. Yeah, you got to line yourself. And, and, and I had... The, a window of 13 seconds to execute something that, you know, had to be perfect uh, with margins of error, like of that much between, between you know, a barrier that if you hit it, you, you face plant, which is what Sally did in the final of the, the Melbourne Commonwealth Games. Yeah. I know for a fact that that moment defined her as a person from the, like, she got, the way she picked herself up after that and how she re-established her psyche um, made her the the incredibly steely mind, you know, you cannot mess with this woman on the start line. Like never again was she the same no, no. because of that experience. 
you know, in some respects, it was a huge gift. Well, actually, so do you need to have those, you know, and I'll say athlete, but I think you need to have those as a business profession um, in any 100%. career. I think if you, you know, fall over and you, you know, you, you kiss the concrete or whatever it is, yeah. it does <laughs> it does make you stronger. It makes you, you know, not want to be in that position again. Yeah, and it makes you, um, you know, you develop different strategies, mm. you know, like you go, okay, what did I do there? You know, and, and how can I, how can I do it better next time? How can I, how can I mitigate against that risk? How can I, and I can't get rid of it altogether, but how can I reduce the likelihood? And how can I increase my probability of success, you know, more predictably so that I can get more consistency and so I can get certainty and out of that certainty, I can get confidence, you know? So it's, it, it's about who you become. Um, and, you know, I often say, you know, it's in the valleys that you grow um, and it's, and it's in the fire, it's in the fire that we're forged. You know, you think about this beautiful nation of ours, we have to have fire in order to propagate and germigate out like our, our native forests. Absolutely. We, ha- we have to burn. You look at all of the new life that comes from the destruction after, after, you know, fires. And some of it happens really quickly. Absolutely. Yes, it does. And you think about as a business owner or as a, in, in your job and you, you like, there are times where you are, you know, you are in the fire, you are like, or in the firing line, yeah, you know? Yeah. And you're like, you're like, how, what am I going to do about this? And you know, like, how do I, like, get here? How do I, yeah. How do I get here? So absolutely. Um, sometimes it's like, shit, how did I get here? Yeah. Um, but in that moment that, that's where you grow that's that's where the good stuff happens it's in the adversity and it's in the you know the messiness that you actually start to discover what you're made of how 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 resilient you are what your capabilities are how creative you can be um and also who's got your back yes you know like big one who, who are your people, your five, you know, the people that are inside of your nucleus that are going to go, come on, babe. come look it up. So <laughs> it's not, you know, like, so it's, that's, that's, that's the joy and the beauty of sport that, you know, that's absolutely the gifts. And, you know, I, I can handle myself in certain, you know, in situations and circumstances now um, because I know I've dealt with worse, you know, I've, I've really genuinely dealt with worse, um, you know, and to that point, my, my, uh, so after the disappointment of 08, I had a couple of years off and at the end of 2010, um, I tried out for the Australian women's bobsleigh team. Yeah, that's so, cool. When I read your bio, I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you had yeah, to go run a little bit, right? And then you jump in but, this. It's exactly it. And it's exactly like cool running. Like, uh, you know, I, I was recruited because I was a good sprinter. I was a good starter. And as a hurdler, I obviously like yeah. you get up really quickly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, I got to go to the world championships for bobsleigh. Um, and I was one of uh, two, two brake women. So we had um, the two brake women and the pilot. The pilots are one that obviously drives and the brake women are ones that, you know, help push, get it up to speed. And then you can like, it's because it's, the, the sled weighs about 200 kilos um, and um, you basically have to, you know, push it as fast as you can 
And there's a lot, like if you can get a really good push, it can mean sort of two, the difference between two or three seconds between you and another, um, another sled. Um, and obviously then it comes down to like the skill set of the pilot to be able to, you know, uh, go in and out of the, the corners with the least amount of friction because it's all it's ice, right? So it's all about speed and friction and stoppage. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, massive. I hated science at school, but I became an expert in, in physics because I was a hurdler and a bobsledder, you know, yeah. like you get real, you get really interested in, you know, breaking forces and well, friction. It's, oh, yeah. it's all the behind the scenes stuff, isn't it? Yeah. 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 But it had a, it had a relevance, right? Like the minute it had an application, it made sense. If it was just like stuff written on a chalkboard, I was like, huh, what am I going to use that? Yeah. I don't need to balance a chemical equation, you know, but I need to know how my, how my chemicals in my body, you know, convert this kind of fuel into the right kind of fuel so that it's available for me to run, you know? So, um, yeah. So I think con context has a lot to do with it, but yeah, so I got to, got to experience that and, Again, just, you know, it is such a privilege to represent your country. And, you know, it, again, just such a different experience. By that stage, I was 32. Um, I was going to say, just your training, you know, in ice versus on a track versus, yeah. you know, like, we don't have a lot of ice in Australia. No, we don't. So all of, all of the training was on an athletics track with a push sled on wheels. So you, we'd learned to do all the pushing and everything. And then when we arrived um, in Germany um, at the facility, we had um, essentially um, six, like, practice runs. So um, it was like cool runnings. I mean, I'm sitting exactly. here I had no idea Australia had a bobsled team. But, yeah. you know, we could just swap a flag over and we're all good to go. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And we had, you know, like an older sled that, you know, has been painted up and, you know, it wasn't, you know, the Canadians have got a bloody double, they've got a semi-trailer with a, you know, espresso machine in it and they've got mechanics and, you know, brand new shiny, you know, crazy gorgeous stuff, you know, and they've got like a lifting platform inside the second <laughs> one where they do all of their, you know, gym and we're like going to some dodgy place down the corner and, you know, we're like, you know, in the garage sanding the runners, you know, ourselves, you know, at the middle of the night <laughs> trying to get this sled ready. So, yeah, it was... Um, that, again, though, would create camaraderie within the team. It's making you a stronger person, you know, yeah. and to me too, if something goes wrong... It's you guys. It's you can't blame your team. You can't blame anybody else. That's it. Absolutely. So yeah, it it certainly teaches you, um, you know, a, a sense of responsibility for your own actions. Um, and it's you know, you you close enough isn't good enough. No. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and you know, if it's if you left everything out there and you could not possibly have done any more, then that's all that can be asked of you. And if it didn't measure up, then you can make that mean a whole bunch of stuff about yourself, uh, which I did for many years. Um, or <laughs> you can you can kind of go, oh, well, that's what I had. And compared to a lot of people um, on the planet. There's, uh, they haven't even had, you know, even remotely the no. um, experience that I've, that I've had. No, that's it. Um, so yeah, so it was, um, it was a, it was a ride, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, that was awesome. So earlier this year, you were, you facilitated our panel discussion at our International Women's Day. And the next day you were heading off to New York for the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women Congress. 
Yeah. It's the twenty fifth wedding anniversary. Oh, twenty fifth yeah, anniversary. It yeah, was a twenty. Yeah, I know when you yeah. were telling me about that when we were having discussions in the weeks in the lead up to, you know, that's the stuff that, you know, it's exciting. It's in, it's you know the conversations of the past. It's the conversations of the future. You know, where where were we twenty five years ago, and where are we today? And has it mattered? You know, has it have we made the difference we set out to? Um, give us something, you know, what was, how did you get involved with it first, I guess? And, and what happened when you were over there? Yeah. So, um, I guess first and foremost, the, the devastating part was, um, the, the UN made the decision to, to actually cancel the event, um, due to the COVID stuff. Um, that happened two days before we were due to fly. And at that point, um, you know, America, there was, you know, there was no no fly, you know, like America was, we could still go. Um, and, you know, whilst things were sort of happening in uh, China and, you know, there's a little bit of stuff starting to show up in Europe, um, it, it certainly hadn't sort of gone to the extreme and we were in two minds about do we still go. Um, and so the delegation that I was part of, um, so the way that I became involved was through Sir Optimist International, which is um, kind of like Rotary International, but it's for, it's for women. So it's it's about, um, you know, I guess, ad advancing and, and improving the lives of women and girls globally. So um, all of the projects that we engage in, um, the fundraising that we do is, is in some way, shape or form designed to um, improve the lives of women and girls. And we have um, a direct link into the United Nations. So we're um, a non-government organisation that is recognised globally um, by the United Nations. So there's a very clear tie there. Um, and a number of Sir Optimus are uh, United Nations, um, like volunteer, um, like delegates essentially. Uh, so they often, a lot of them will sit on, on different UN panels, et cetera. So the question then was, you know, do I still go? Um, and, you know, out of the six people that were going to go, three of them chose to stay home and three of us chose to go. So um, uh, we kind of did what women do best and we made the most of it. Yeah. <laughs> and we just um, made connections as, as best we could with those that chose to go. So. Um, you know, the event is held annually, um, but what was really special about this year is it was the 25th anniversary of um, the Beijing Platform for Action. So um, the fourth World Women's Congress was held in Beijing in 1997. Um, no, sorry, 95, sorry, 1995. Um, and it was at that Congress that they put together this, this mandate, this declaration, um, basically these 12 guiding principles for um, what they believed needed to happen in order to improve um, the rights and opportunities and to, to equal opportunity for women um, globally. Um, so this particular status of women was going to focus on that particular um, declaration and, you know, looking at, you know, reviewing it, um, looking at those 12 guiding principles, are they still relevant? Um, you know, do what's happened, you know, in, in the past, because I believe they review them every five years. So, so the last time that they've done it was five years ago. Um, but you can imagine like from 1995, you know, the internet didn't exist, like it was just in its infancy, like 
the sort of world that we were live, living in, you know, I think, I believe there's some footage from that original Congress and, and Hillary Clinton's dressed in a, you know, a powder pink power suit, you know, yeah. you know, and she's sort of at the front of the room, you know, and you think about, you know, she um, hadn't really become Hillary Clinton yet, had she? No, no, this is the thing. So yeah, it's it's just was really fascinating um, to think, you know, that's what they were kind of forging. And then as for me, you know, I was a fifteen-year-old girl back then, so um, you know, I hadn't even started embarking on my whole athletics career that I spoke about. So you know, during during that, you know, in the time since, you know, it's um, it's been you know, a significant change over a number of decades in terms of technological advancements and economic advancement and all that sort of stuff. Um, but the question is, you know, even inside of all of that change and, and um, benefit to some, um, you know, have has has the rising tide lifted all boats or, or are there some that have been left behind? Um, so because that didn't happen, um, you know, there's there's normally eight. There would be eight, there would be eighteen thousand women globally. You know, descending on New York for the for this summit um, with all of these. You know, there was over five hundred and fifty side events organised. Like, just such a significant undertaking. And and to go from you know that to a week later, nothing to no one. Um, we ended up. Um, I got to tour the United Nations. Um, yeah, um, and it was the last the last day that they were doing public tours so we literally just snuck in um and I guess what was really interesting for me um is my like I guess education about this whole thing was really really quick I literally like I, I the opportunity came about in October and then you know I had to get the applications and everything by November and and the, yeah and then obviously it was going happening in March so um it was a very quick turnaround and um but in that time you know, I was really lucky to, I guess, um, be part of a, a, a Sir Optimus club that, you know, has a lot of people that, you know, have been around for many, many years. Um, and um, I guess two, two things. Um, with the tour of the UN, I didn't realise, and I think a lot of people probably don't, that the United Nations was actually formed directly after World War II. So the reason why we have a United Nations was specifically to create a global, essentially bipartisan organisation that was dedicated to peacekeeping across the globe to avoid another world war is essentially why it was created. Now, a lot of people would argue that it's been become perverted and all the rest of it. And, you know, there's a whole, and a lot of people would say the same thing about, you know, the World Health Organisation and all the rest of it. So, um, whether you know, regardless of what you think, um, the intent. Yeah, the was, original reasons they all got together in a room. Yeah, was was to figure out, you know, how how do we um, prevent? How do how do we manage global affairs in a way that essentially prevents, you know, something like a world war ever happening again? And clearly, it's worked because we haven't had one though. Um, we've had a lot of different conflicts and there's, you know, there's different um, councils within the UN. So there's the Security Council, which is essentially the War Council. Yeah. And there's some interesting stuff around which nations have veto powers uh-huh. and what and which, which nations have the right to, you know, actually um, address that council. Um, so, yeah, if you're curious about that, I encourage you to do a bit of research into that. Yeah. Um, and then there's the... Um, 
the social, uh, there's a whole bunch of acronyms, but basically the economic, Social and Economic Forum one council committee. Um, and there's about, I think there's about 50 or so nations involved in that one. The Security Council is like 15. It's like very super, super select. <laughs> um, yeah, you can imagine like, Iran is not of the major nations you'd expect and then um, I think there's one seat that changes every every year or so so there's a bit of um, turnover but not much and then you have the general assembly which is like every nation on the planet it's like yeah. over 184 you know countries and nations and peoples and they all sit in a certain um, you know order and then they change the order each year so you know you then sit next to different people so um, so that's the big major room where they do all the big announcements and stuff. So, um, so it was actually, it was very educational in terms of understanding how it all works. Um, and then you've got all of the different committees and subcommittees. Um, and, you know, they, they had some really beautiful imagery um, and art, artwork. And there was a lot of Scandinavian countries heavily involved. And I think a lot of the United Nations um, chairman and chairpersons over the years have been come from Scandinavian countries which is not surprising if you understand their politics and the way they work. So um, that was a really eye-opening experience. And, um, you know, it was kind of bittersweet because I was like, I'm so looking forward to attending those, some of those sessions and being part of the conversations that were being had um, around what the UN's doing um, in the different areas. And the, the areas that I'm most interested in is empowerment um, for women, specifically through education and financial um, Self, self sustainability. Um, so yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next little bit as to how it sort of um, mobilizes virtually and all the rest of it. Um, yeah, and I guess the other really cool thing that I managed to salvage out of it was um, on the Monday, um, we actually chose to fly forward and come home early. So um, on my last day, I had lunch with um, three beautiful women, um, all in their 70s. Um, one's a born and bred New Yorker. Um, one's, I think, South African or New Zealand, New Zealand, uh, but she lives in New York, married, a, married an American. Um, and then the other was uh, an English lady um, from, uh, but lives in, who lives in Edinburgh. Um, and so they were all, um, you know, quite strong activists. And um, what was really fascinating is I was like, you know, they were talking about um, some of the changes to policy that, that, that were being suggested, specifically around reproductive health for women. And, and I was like, you know, what do you, why, why are you so upset about those changes or the, the, the pushback? You're talking about this pushback. You know, what are you talking about? And she said, well, you know, in the 70s, we were on the streets, you know, burning our bras. Like we were, we were fighting for those rights because they did not exist. Um, and to see certain countries lobbying for a relaxation of certain elements of those rights that have been won. Um, their concern is that, you know, as women of this age, like you and I have never grown up without those rights. Um, so we don't know what it is to fight for them. So there was this really precious moment of, you know, these women who are 30 years older than me, essentially passing down the mantle to someone who is of an age that these sorts of things matter to me and I am also you know at a point in my life where I'm looking for how can I contribute to others how can I you know build a legacy and all those sorts of things um 
And so I'm like, oh, I, all of a sudden I needed to educate myself about the rights and opportunities that I was born with that could potentially be eroded and that a whole bunch of other women still don't have. Yes. So it was this really interesting, you know, conversation um, about, you know, so for me to even be, you know, white, Western, privileged, affluent, um, just taking for granted certain rights and then what I think is, you know, a potential problem um, in the world, you know, is minor compared to the right to clean, sanitary running water that, you know, half the rest of the world don't have. So it sort of, it really put into perspective, yeah, the, the things that matter and, you know, the importance of actually listening to the people who are most significantly affected and what they want as their rights, you know, um, as well as making sure that we don't go backwards. Yeah, well, I mean, these ladies have literally held those placards up and, like you said, burnt their bras and sacrificed huge amounts to get these policies in place. And then because we have them, we don't appreciate them. And yeah. then, we, you know, drop, you know, go, oh, you know, we don't need all of that. Let's rewrite the rules. Yeah, yeah. and take away, you know, and, and a lot of us probably don't even know what all of that means. Yeah, and don't even know what's happening because it's so subtle. Yeah. You know, it's such a subtle rewrite of certain things, you know. So when I when I when I hear, you know, these, these women like really arcing up about it, I'm like, why? Why do I why is that a problem? And they're like, you don't understand if that if they change that then it takes us back. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh, right, okay, I get it. And, and you know, these women would have been around and seen that change in women voting or women being allowed to be in a bar. Or yes. you know, it, it's the stuff we don't you know even think and about it. And a lot the of right to credit. Yeah, you know, get a mortgage in my. We couldn't yeah. have loans in our own name. Yeah, you know, like you know, my mum worked in the bank and she didn't. She wasn't allowed one. You know, they were well, paying think, a salary. They knew where money was coming from. She needed a husband's yeah. signature. Well, I think that issue happened with Ida Butros. You know, I read somewhere could have been in a book that she was earning yes. all this money and she couldn't get a mortgage. Well, her husband. Yeah. Yeah. She was earning more money than her husband and Kerry Packer was signing the checks. <laughs> so she's like, I'm good. I'm good for the money. <laughs> yeah. He's, yeah. he's my collateral, yeah. Yeah, pretty <laughs> sure this guy will back me. Like, yeah, he ended up being a, you know, a, a huge, you know, um, you know, assistance to that. But it's Advocate, those little yeah. things. Yeah, you know, and I didn't think about any of that when I went to go and get my home loan, home loan on my own. No. You know, it just wasn't even something you needed to, think about fighting for no so and imagine if they imagine if they started to try and change that oh. or more importantly imagine if you're a 15 year old girl in an asian country or an african country and that's your reality right now yeah and you don't you, you it, it doesn't even occur to you necessarily to think that you can have more or that there's another option yeah but yeah. that sort of stuff you're like okay and, and a lot of this did not happen that long ago like it, no you know, it was in my mother's time, you know, I'm 40 yeah. like you are. It wasn't yeah. in our lifetime, but it was in our parents' lifetime. Parents' lifetime. Yeah. It's like, yeah, 40 to 50, in the last 40 to 50 years, it's really significant. Yeah. Yeah. It was in it, the seven, the 70s were really significant in terms of change. Mm. Um, yeah. I've been watching um, Mrs. America mm -hmm. on Foxtel awesome. and it, it's a, it's about the Equal Rights Amendment. 
um, in the United States and the fight for changing the constitution of America to actually allow for equal rights um, to certain things like reproductive Well, I was going to say rights. just that whole, that, just that one statement, equal rights, you know, there's so much in it that, you know, yeah. we want more. And then, like you say, we just need to look across halfway across the world and they still don't have that running water and that power and you know they're marrying off eight-year-old their eight-year-old daughter yeah because that's culturally accepted and expected and expected yeah absolutely so there's you know it's um yeah when you start to look at it you're a little bit um it can be overwhelming that's for sure Um, and so yeah we're isolated you know we don't have those conversations every day no, it's true. That's true. Yeah, it's not like the regular topic of conversation. We're like more up to date with what the latest Netflix offerings are, <laughs> rather than whether or not you know women in Uganda have you know right to reproductive health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. No, <laughs> seems a little seems a little nonsensical, but yeah, it's gotta... you know yeah that's exactly right. You know you've got yeah yeah it's um it's crazy some of the things that we just go to the grocery shop and buy and yet it's not even you know they don't even have a grocery shop no do this you know or are allowed to walk alone as a female in their Mm. own community yeah yeah Yeah, and feel safe when they do it and feel safe when they do it yeah that's right wow there you go wow well i hope that all um you know i hope they do, you know, regroup everybody and, you know, do it again because it it sounds like there's a lot of um, positives that will come out of it, but there's still a lot of, you know, going back and having a look at what we had, you know, in those 12 steps planned to do and did we do it? Have we achieved right. it? Yeah. And yeah, if absolutely. Not, yeah, and I, you know, and I feel like it's one of those things that that's never really going to be done. No. You know, it's never really finished. It's just the next evolution. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, there you go. Interesting conversations. Thank you very much, Fiona. That's awesome. Yeah, no, fantastic. So if anybody, um, Fiona, we can find you on LinkedIn. um, And if anyone wants to connect with Fiona, I'd definitely recommend it. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for your time. We definitely touched on uh, two very different but um, very interesting uh, topics at the same time. So thank you you for your time. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Stay safe.